Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. This is part two of our look at the contentious transformation of the early Bauhaus from Grofius's manifesto for the union of art and craft to the motto of the 1923 exhibition Kunst und Technik, eine neue Einheit, Art and Technology, a new unity. While this entire podcast is a serial continuity, for those of you just joining us, the prior episode may be a good place to begin. But if you'd like to jump into the time stream right here, welcome. Somewhere between the founding of the Bauhaus at Weimar in 1919 and the opening of its Dessau campus in 1925, a decisive transition took place, with the 1923 exhibition revealing both sides at the midpoint. The diverse forces that Paul Clay had noted were steadily resolving, away from a self-aware or self-absorbed expressionism and towards an industrial, purist geometry influenced by the Dutch de Stille and Russian constructivist movements. But a rear view on the past often lends a sense of inevitability to events that could have easily been otherwise. The realm outside, the so-called dustbin of history, is neither a meritocracy nor even a stable regime. In our last episode, we left off with a brief description of the Sommerfeld House, the first large commission the Bauhaus completed in 1920. Today, we start by looking at it more closely. A young talent and future Bauhaus master, Marcel Breuer, designed the furniture. Josef Albers, who would share a similar career path, designed the glasswork. Dorothy Helm created an appliqué curtain, the patterns of which evoked the asymmetrical counterbalance and triangular accent motif that suffused the whole house. Jost Schmidt is credited with the design and completion of the wood carvings. Schmidt went on to study, design, and teach at the Bauhaus in various capacities until the 1933 closure. Tellingly, in 1935, he accepted a teaching position at a school directed by Hugo Herring, one of the early European proponents of what came to be known as organic architecture. Schmidt's association with both the Bauhaus and Herring is interesting in that it shows how non-binary the divide between expressionism and industry was within the school, and also how that split played out. Though in later days, formal expressions suited to Schmidt's talents were mostly confined to the sculpture and typography workshops where he spent most of his time. During the early project of the Zomerfeld House, they landed everywhere. Outside, on the projecting timber ends, the inside of the front door, on the panels of the stairway, and on radiator covers set flush against the wall surface. 
We have several images on lapsuslima.com under our previous entry, and an image of the external beams is included in this episode's page. The house was built with salvaged teak wood, both inside and out. Teak, a wood native to South and Southeast Asia, is softer and lighter than apple and ebony, harder and denser than oak, and valued for its outstanding durability and water resistance. Luxury boats are built from teak, adding a twist to nautical salvage being the source of the material. Owing to the wood's hardness, which allows for highly detailed carving, Schmidt applied the contrasts in form that he had been exposed to in Itten's classes. On the rear exterior of the house, a simple yet effective extension of the beams over the back doors to a porch provided that entry with a sense of shelter, as well as with what appears to be cantilevering for a small balcony on the upper level. The projecting timbers, reminiscent of old Norse houses, show the ends elaborated into triangular and rectangular decoration, similar to some of Wright's ornament. On the interior, the highly detailed stairway contains narratively carved panels, adorned with the names of cities associated with the Zomerfeld Company. Abstracted figurations of industry and individuals engaged in commerce fill the panels. The role of the patron who pays to have his business thusly consecrated can, of course, be traced back to the Tuscan merchant princes of the Renaissance and further. The medieval guilds who raised the cathedrals that Grofius so admired had portraits, signets, and festoons glazed into stained-glass windows. Though the Zomerfeld stair's decorative motifs would have been largely generated by the methods of formal contrast proposed by Itten, these scenes also carry antiquarian implications. Reference to Egyptian profile relief can hardly be avoided, and the trope of viewing figures from distant urban centers ascending a stairway led by the joint pursuit of business is exactly the sentiment of unity in common purpose that the steps of the great audience hall of the Persian Darius I, King of Kings, wished to convey, if expressed there in Berlin on a much more modest northern European scale. Nor were these intimations of worlds past accidental. They were striven for, but indirectly, Prior generations of architects had struggled to refer to the past in a syntactic sense. They had used the form and grammar of older ornament and the shapes of bygone cultures in an effort to communicate something, perhaps ineffable, about contemporary life. As we've consistently demonstrated in this podcast, the deeper architecture dove into the 20th century, the more that formal reference to the past was deemed to be a failure. 
like Mutasius expressed, the newer strains of architecture did not want to follow in the footsteps of their predecessors, but to seek what they sought, and allude to the past, if need be, in a semantic way that could carry the same force of meaning because it did not cling to dead forms. This is what Kandinsky summoned when he wrote that the revival of the external forms which served to express those inner feelings in an earlier age would signal an awakening. To give a case, in the 1910s, visual imitation of non-European art resurfaced in painting with the Parisian avant-garde, but Kandinsky also wrote that reprisals of external resemblance would be of a far shorter duration and of lesser significance than the potential renewal of the spirit that was present in the earlier times and places. In keeping with our own example, the wild manner of post-impressionism and the Fauvists might be a case of this. Magdalena Drosta's history of the Bauhaus emphasizes Grofius's connection to such ideas, even if the concepts in her summary are, understandably, quite jumbled. Within what is cited as from page 9 of an undated Bauhaus manuscript within the school's archives, in 1922, Gropius described an imminent future counterpoint of visual arts. Confirmation everywhere. Itten, Grunov, Kandinsky, Ozenfant, Generet. With this being, of course, a reference to the recently renamed Corbusier, who was allied with the painter Amede Ozenfant. It is also remarkable that, even well into the onset of Itten's Mazdaznanic rave, the Bauhaus instructor is named in one breath by Gropius along with Kandinsky and Corbusier, treating them all as standard-bearers for a common vanguard. Drosta leaves the reference to future counterpoint dangling in a way that reads as somewhat bewildering to anyone not already familiar with the broader ideas of the time. She adds that Grofius felt regular laws could be found governing spatial composition just as they existed for musical composition. Musical counterpoint is most basically defined as two or more distinct lines of melody that are in tonal harmony but create a sense of tension and resolution by interplay of independent rhythm, as with a Bach fugue. And in this desire to achieve a new kind of visual counterpoint, so as to conjure up the spent vitality of earlier cultures within the fading forms of Western civilization, we see again the influence of Oswald Spengler, who argued that the Faustian system of the West had music, and specifically 
counterpuntal music as its most characteristic art expression. Like much of Europe's art world, Grotheus was enthused to finally see proof of a nascent culture in the wonder year of 1922. And in his case in particular, he seemed to feel that formal counterpoint in visual harmony would be a cornerstone of the emerging new world system. Until I can return to the Bauhaus archive in Berlin, a fuller context for this mysterious manuscript remains uncertain. However, Droste's commentary adds that Grotheus apparently believed that such a counterpoint had existed earlier in Gothic art and in the art of Greece, Egypt, and India. A supposition that is all the more peculiar on the account of its being so heterodox. The sense of ancient analogy that the Sommerfeld panels invites is not casual. If anything, it is even more powerful because the effect was achieved not by formal imitation, but by what Kandinsky might have called a revival in spirit. Such a renewal's phases of cultural and therefore architectural development were prominent in Grotheus's mind. Barry Bergdahl and Leah Dickerman's History of the Bauhaus quotes a 1920 publication of Grotheus from a supplemental to the Deutsche Bauzeitung, Germany's architectural magazine, in which he declared that every material has its beauty, its possibilities, and its time. Wood is the building material of the present. Though the more jaded listener could suppose this statement may have been more or less influenced by Mr. Zomerfeld's salvage of a literal boatload of precious wood to commission a house with, Grotheus appeared to have good reasons regardless. Wood has a wonderful capability for artistic shaping and is by nature so appropriate to the primitive beginning of our newly developing life. Wood is the original building material of men, sufficient for all the structural parts of building, walls, floor, ceiling, roof, columns, and beam. It can be sawed, carved, nailed, planed, milled, polished, stained, inlaid, lacquered, and painted. Wood, the other white meat. All hyperbole aside, what Grotheus said about wood was accurate, and the Zomerfeld house a masterful expression of how the material could be applied. But we all know the Bauhaus would not wander amongst the trees for long. During the war, architects such as Taut, Mies, and Grotheus had stayed in touch via a pen-pal system they had dubbed the Glass Chain. The passage from the 1920 article that the Bergdahl-Dickerman quote did not include 
reads as follows. Wood is the building material of the present, the one of the distant future, the one of our wishfulness, pure glass. We won't have reached maturity until the sense of building will have animated the entire people such as it was during the period of the Gothic cathedrals. This prediction about glass architecture was, in a way, correct. Much architecture of the second half of the 20th century would be the stacking of glass boxes, a far cry from glittering cathedrals. We have yet to observe in our examinations of the historical record how Grotius would have appraised the relative success or failure of this early ambition in his later years. However, a project that began concurrently with the Sommerfeld House would try to set a beacon for this future in the midst of timber houses. In 1920, the school was offered a piece of land near Buchfahrt, a tourist resort area south of Weimar and slightly north of the Cistercian-founded spa town of Bad Berke. The planned communitarian development would have been a half-hour drive or a one-and-a-half-hour walk from Weimar, predating Wright's decision to form the Taliesin Fellowship Grofius wished to build houses and workshops to create a model community. Grofius maintained a conviction that constructing a new campus community on utopian principles would make true architectural and educational reform more practically achievable than a piecemeal approach. But Taliesin would eventually come to fruition while Grotheus's community vision for the future of his school and architecture never left the planning stages. This unbuilt Bauhaus campus is the Trojan layer directly beneath the Zomerfeld house that we referred to in our previous episode. Though its outlines are more distant to us, more remote, they point to a possible future that was not fulfilled, but could have been. What we see in history books on the Dessau Bauhaus, with their glamour photos of pure, white walls and glass curtains, is a vastly scaled-back and rush-designed compromise of the school's original calling. Perhaps the ideological winds were shifting, and a world of color, detailed decoration, transcendent personal feeling and craft materials, all intended to bestir ancient dynamism, was swept away by conscious intent. But post-war hyperinflation and fickle local governments gave the school a hard push in that industrial, purist direction that we far too often think of as inevitable. After all, weren't the ambitions of the Expressionists no more 
than historic fever dreams? But the vestiges of the early Bauhaus trailed into the exhibition of 1923 and further. Join us as we step another level deeper to explore the unbuilt future of the Bauhaus. Next, on Lapsus Lima. <laughs>